0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg. www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton. The Queer Feet If you meet a member of that select club, the twelve true fishermen, entering the Vernon Hotel for the annual club dinner, you will observe, as he takes off his overcoat, that his evening coat is green and not black. If, supposing that you have the star-defying audacity to address such a being, you ask him why, he will probably answer that he does it to avoid being mistaken for a waiter. You will then retire crushed. But you will leave behind you a mystery as yet unsolved and a tale worth telling. If, to pursue the same vein of improbable conjecture, you were to meet a mild, hard-working little priest named Father Brown, and were to ask him what he thought was the most singular luck of his life, he would probably reply that upon the whole his best stroke was at the Vernon Hotel, where he had averted a crime and, perhaps, saved a soul merely by listening to a few footsteps in a passage. He is perhaps a little proud of this wild and wonderful guess of his, and it is probable that he might refer to it. But since it is immeasurably unlikely that you will ever rise high enough in the social world to find the twelve true fishermen, or that you will ever sink low enough among the slums and criminals, "'to find Father Brown. "'I fear you will never hear the story at all "'unless you hear it from me.' "'The Vernon Hotel, "'at which the twelve true fishermen "'held their annual dinners, "'was an institution such as can only exist "'in an oligarchical society "'which has almost gone mad on good manners. "'It was that topsy-turvy product an exclusive commercial enterprise that is it was a thing which paid not by attracting people but actually by turning people away in the heart of a plutocracy tradesmen become cunning enough to be more fastidious than their customers they positively create difficulties so that their wealthy and weary clients may spend money and diplomacy in overcoming them. If there were a fashionable hotel in London, which no man could enter who was under six foot, society would meekly make up parties of six foot men to dine in it. If there were an expensive restaurant, which by a mere caprice of its proprietor was only open on Thursday afternoon, it would be crowded on Thursday afternoon. The Vernon Hotel stood, as if by accident, in the corner of a square in Belgravia. It was a small hotel, and a very inconvenient one. But its very inconveniences were considered as walls protecting a particular class. One inconvenience, in particular, was held to be of vital importance the fact that practically only twenty-four people could dine in the place at once. The only big dinner table was the celebrated terrace table, which stood open to the air on a sort of veranda overlooking one of the most exquisite old gardens in London. Thus it happened that even the twenty-four seats at this table could only be enjoyed in warm weather, and this making the enjoyment yet more difficult made it yet more desired. The existing owner of the hotel was a Jew named Lever, and he made nearly a million out of it by making it difficult to get into. Of course he combined with this limitation in the scope of his enterprise the most careful polish in its performance. The wines and cooking were really as good as any in Europe, and the demeanor of the attendants exactly mirrored the fixed mood of the English upper class. The proprietor knew all his waiters like the fingers on his hand. There were only fifteen of them, all told. It was much easier to become a member of Parliament than to become a waiter in that hotel. Each waiter was trained in terrible silence and smoothness, as if he were a gentleman's servant. And... Indeed, there was generally at least one waiter to every gentleman who dined. The club of the twelve true fishermen would not have consented to dine anywhere but in such a place, for it insisted on a luxurious privacy, and would have been quite upset by the mere thought that any other club was even dining in the same building. On the occasion of their annual dinner the fishermen were in the habit of exposing all their treasures, as if they were in a private house, especially the celebrated set of fish knives and forks which were, as it were, the insignia of the society, each being exquisitely wrought in silver in the form of a fish, and each loaded at the hilt with one large pearl. These were always laid out for the fish course, and the fish course was always the most magnificent in that magnificent repast. The society had a vast number of ceremonies and observances, but it had no history and no object. That was where it was so very aristocratic. You did not have to be anything in order to be one of the twelve fishers. Unless you were already a certain sort of person, you never even heard of them. It had been in existence twelve years. Its president was Mr. Audley. Its vice-president was the Duke of Chester. If I have in any degree conveyed the atmosphere of this appalling hotel, the reader may feel a natural wonder as to how I came to know anything about it, and may even speculate as to how so ordinary a person as my friend Father Brown came to find himself in that golden galley. As far as that is concerned, my story is simple, or even vulgar. There is in the world a very aged rioter and demagogue who breaks into the most refined retreats with the dreadful information that all men are brothers, and wherever this leveler went on his pale horse, it was Father Brown's trade to follow. One of the waiters, an Italian, had been struck down with a paralytic stroke that afternoon, and his Jewish employer, marveling mildly at such superstitions, had consented to send for the nearest popish priest. With what the waiter confessed to Father Brown, we are not concerned, for the excellent reason that the cleric kept it to himself. But apparently it involved him in writing out a note or statement for the conveying of some message, or the writing of some wrong. Father Brown, therefore, with a meek impudence, which he would have shown equally in Buckingham Palace, asked to be provided with a room and writing materials. Mr. Lever was torn in two. He was a kind man, and also had that bad imitation of kindness, the dislike of any difficulty or scene. At the same time, the presence of one unusual stranger in his hotel that evening was like a speck of dirt on something just cleaned. There was never any borderland or anteroom in the Vernon Hotel, no people waiting in the hall, no customers coming in on chance. There were fifteen waiters. There were twelve guests. It would be as startling to find a new guest in the hotel that night, as to find a new brother taking breakfast or tea in one's own family. Moreover, the priest's appearance was second-rate, and his clothes muddy. A mere glimpse of him afar off might precipitate a crisis in the club. Mr. Lever at last hit on a plan to cover, since he might not obliterate the disgrace. When you enter, as you never will, Vernon Hotel, you pass down a short passage decorated with a few dingy but important pictures, and come to the main vestibule and lounge, which opens on your right, into passages leading to the public rooms, and on your left to a similar passage pointing to the kitchens and offices of the hotel. Immediately on your left hand is the corner of a glass office, which abuts upon the lounge, a house within a house so to speak, like the old hotel bar, which probably once occupied its place. In this office sat the representative of the proprietor, nobody in this place ever appeared in person if he could help it, and just beyond the office, on the way to the servants' quarters, was the gentleman's cloakroom, the last boundary of the gentleman's domain. But between the office and the cloakroom, room. Was a small private room without other outlet, sometimes used by the proprietor for delicate and important matters, such as lending a duke a thousand pounds, or declining to lend him sixpence. It is a mark of the magnificent tolerance of Mr. Lever that he permitted this holy place to be for about half an hour profaned by a mere priest, scribbling away on a piece of paper. The story which Father Brown was writing down was very likely a much better story than this one, only it will never be known. I can merely state that it was very nearly as long, and that the last two or three paragraphs of it were the least exciting and absorbing. For it was by the time that he had reached these that the priest began a little to allow his thoughts to wander, and his animal senses which were commonly keen, to awaken. The time of darkness and dinner was drawing on, his own forgotten little room was without a light, and perhaps the gathering gloom, as occasionally happens, sharpened the sense of sound. As Father Brown wrote the last and least essential part of his document, he caught himself writing to the rhythm of a recurrent noise outside, just as one sometimes thinks, "'to the tune of a railway train. "'When he became conscious of the thing, "'he found what it was, "'only the ordinary patter of feet passing the door, "'which in a hotel was no very unlikely matter. "'Nevertheless, he stared at the darkened ceiling "'and listened to the sound. "'After he had listened for a few seconds dreamily, "'he got to his feet and listened intently.' with his head a little on one side. Then he sat down again, and buried his brow in his hands, now not merely listening, but listening and thinking also. The footsteps outside at any given moment were such as one might hear in any hotel, and yet, taken as a whole, there was something very strange about them. There were no other footsteps. It was always a very silent house, for the few familiar guests went at once to their own apartments, and the well-trained waiters were told to be almost invisible until they were wanted. One could not conceive any place where there was less reason to apprehend anything irregular. But these footsteps were so odd that one could not decide to call them regular or irregular. Father Brown followed them with his finger on the edge of the table, like a man trying to learn a tune on the piano. First, there came a long rush of rapid little steps, such as a light man might make in winning a walking race. At a certain point they stopped and changed to a sort of slow, swinging stamp, numbering not a quarter of the steps, but occupying about the same time. The moment the last echoing stamp had died away would come again the run or ripple of light hurrying feet, and then again the thud of the heavier walking. It was certainly the same pair of boots, partly because, as has been said, there were no other boots about, and partly because they had a small but unmistakable creak in them. Father Brown had the kind of head Cannot help asking questions. And on this apparently trivial question, his head almost split. He had seen men run in order to jump. He had seen men run in order to slide. But why on earth should a man run in order to walk? Or, again, why should he walk in order to run? Yet no other description would cover the antics of this invisible pair of legs. The man was either walking very fast down one half of the corridor in order to walk very slow down the other half, or he was walking very slow at one end to have the rapture of walking fast at the other. Neither suggestion seemed to make much sense. His brain was growing darker and darker, like his room. Yet, as he began to think steadily, the very blackness of his cell seemed to make his thoughts more vivid. He began to see, as in a kind of vision, the fantastic feet capering along the corridor in unnatural or symbolic attitudes. Was it a heathen religious dance? Or some entirely new kind of scientific exercise? Father Brown began to ask himself, with more exactness, what the steps suggested. Taking the slow step first. It certainly was not the step of the proprietor. Men of his type walk with a rapid waddle, or they sit still. It could not be any servant or messenger waiting for directions. It did not sound like it. The poorer orders, in an oligarchy, sometimes lurch about when they are slightly drunk, but generally, and especially in such gorgeous scenes, they stand or sit in constrained attitudes. No, that heavy yet springy step, with a kind of careless emphasis, not specially noisy, yet not caring what noise it made, belonged to only one of the animals of this earth. It was a gentleman of Western Europe, and probably one who had never worked for his living. Just as he came to this solid certainty, the step changed to the quicker one, and ran past the door as feverishly as a rat. The listener remarked that though this step was much swifter, it was also much more noiseless, almost as if the man were walking on tiptoe. Yet it was not associated in his mind with secrecy, but with something else, something that he could not remember. He was maddened by one of those half memories that make a man feel half witted. Surely he had heard that strange, swift walking somewhere. Suddenly he sprang to his feet with a new idea in his head and walked to the door. His room had no direct outlet on the passage, but let on one side into the glass office, and on the other into the cloakroom beyond. He tried the door into the office, and found it locked. Then he looked at the window, now a square pane full of purple cloud left by a livid sunset, and for an instant he smelt evil, as a dog smells rats." The rational part of him, whether the wiser or not, regained its supremacy. He remembered that the proprietor had told him that he should lock the door, and would come later to release him. He told himself that twenty things he had not thought of might explain the eccentric sounds outside. He reminded himself that there was just enough light left to finish his own proper work. Bringing his paper to the window, so as to catch the last stormy evening light, he resolutely plunged once more into the almost-completed record. He had written for about twenty minutes, bending closer and closer to his paper in the lessening light. Then suddenly he sat upright. He had heard the strange feet once more. This time they had a third oddity. Previously the unknown man had walked, with levity indeed and lightning quickness, but he had walked. This time he ran. One could hear the swift, soft, bounding steps coming along the corridor like the pads of a fleeing and leaping panther. Whoever was coming was a very strong, active man, in still yet tearing excitement. Yet when the sound had swept up to the office like a sort of whispering whirlwind, it suddenly changed again to the old, slow, swaggering stamp. Father Brown flung down his paper and, knowing the office door to be locked, went at once into the cloakroom on the other side. The attendant of this place was temporarily absent, probably because the only guests were at dinner and his office was a sinecure. After groping through a gray forest of overcoats, he found that the dim cloakroom opened on the lighted corridor in the form of a sort of counter or half-door, like most of the counters across which we have all handed umbrellas and received tickets. There was a light immediately above the semicircular arch of this opening. It threw little illumination on Father Brown himself, who seemed a mere dark outline against the dim sunset window behind him, but it threw an almost theatrical light on the man who stood outside the cloakroom in the corridor. He was an elegant man in very plain evening dress, tall, but with an air of not taking up much room. One felt that he could have slid along like a shadow where many smaller men would have been obvious and obstructive. His face, now flung back in the lamplight, was swarthy and vivacious, the face of a foreigner. His figure was good, his manners good-humored and confident. A critic could only say that his black coat was a shade below his figure and manners, and even bulged and bagged in an odd way. The moment he caught sight of Brown's black silhouette against the sunset. He tossed down a scrap of paper with a number, and called out with amiable authority, "'I want my hat and coat, please. I find I have to go away at once.' Father Brown took the paper without a word, and obediently went to look for the coat. It was not the first menial work he had done in his life. He brought it and laid it on the counter.' Meanwhile, the strange gentleman who had been feeling in his waistcoat pocket said, laughing, I haven't got any silver. You can keep this. And he threw down half a sovereign and caught up his coat. Father Brown's figure remained quite dark and still, but in that instant he had lost his head. His head was always most valuable when he had lost it. In such moments he put two and two together and made four million. Often the Catholic Church, which is wedded to common sense, did not approve of it. Often he did not approve of it himself. But it was real inspiration, important at rare crises, when whosoever shall lose his head, the same shall save it. "'I think, sir,' he said civilly, "'that you have some silver in your pocket.' "'The tall gentleman stared. "'Hang it,' he cried. "'If I choose to give you gold, why should you complain?' "'Because silver is sometimes more valuable than gold,' "'said the priest mildly. "'That is, in large quantities.' THE STRANGER LOOKED AT HIM CURIOUSLY. THEN HE LOOKED STILL MORE CURIOUSLY UP THE PASSAGE TOWARDS THE MAIN ENTRANCE. THEN HE LOOKED BACK AT BROWN AGAIN, AND THEN HE LOOKED VERY CAREFULLY AT THE WINDOW BEYOND BROWN'S HEAD, STILL COLORED WITH THE AFTERGLOW OF THE STORM. THEN HE SEEMED TO MAKE UP HIS MIND. HE PUT ONE HAND ON THE COUNTER, VAULTED OVER AS EASILY AS AN ACROBAT, AND TOWERED ABOVE THE PRIEST, "'putting one tremendous hand upon his collar. "'Stand still,' he said in a hacking whisper. "'I don't want to threaten you, but—' "'I do want to threaten you,' said Father Brown, "'in a voice like a rolling drum. "'I want to threaten you with the worm that dieth not "'and the fire that is not quenched.' "'You're a rum sort of cloakroom clerk,' said the other.' I am a priest, Monsieur Flambeau, said Brown, and I am ready to hear your confession. The other stood gasping for a few moments, and then staggered back into a chair. The first two courses of the dinner of the twelve true fishermen had proceeded with placid success. I do not possess a copy of the menu, and if I did it would not convey anything to anybody. It was written in a sort of super-French employed by cooks, but quite unintelligible to Frenchmen. There was a tradition in the club that the hors d'oeuvres should be various and manifold to the point of madness. They were taken seriously because they were avowedly useless extras, like the whole dinner and the whole club. There was also a tradition that the soup course should be light and unpretending, a sort of simple and austere vigil for the feast of fish that was to come. The talk was that strange, slight talk which governs the British Empire, which governs it in secret, and yet would scarcely enlighten an ordinary Englishman, even if he could overhear it. Cabinet ministers on both sides were alluded to by their Christian names, "'with a sort of bored benignity. "'The radical Chancellor of the Exchequer, "'whom the whole Tory party was supposed to be cursing "'for his extortions, "'was praised for his minor poetry, "'or his saddle in the hunting field. "'The Tory leader, "'whom all liberals were supposed to hate as a tyrant, "'was discussed and, on the whole, praised as a liberal.' it seemed somehow that politicians were very important. And yet, anything seemed important about them except their politics. Mr. Audley, the chairman, was an amiable elderly man who still wore gladstone collars. He was a kind of symbol of all that phantasmal and yet fixed society. He had never done anything, not even anything wrong. He was not fast, he was not even particularly rich. He was simply in the thing, and there was an end of it. No party could ignore him, and if he had wished to be in the cabinet, he certainly would have been put there. The Duke of Chester, the vice-president, was a young and rising politician. That is to say, he was a pleasant youth with flat, fair hair and a freckled face, with moderate intelligence and enormous estates. In public, his appearances were always successful and his principle was simple enough. When he thought of a joke, he made it and was called brilliant. When he could not think of a joke, he said that this was no time for trifling and was called able. In private, In a club of his own class, he was simply quite pleasantly frank and silly, like a schoolboy. Mr. Audley, never having been in politics, treated them a little more seriously. Sometimes he even embarrassed the company by phrases suggesting that there was some difference between a liberal and a conservative. He himself was a conservative, even in private life. He had a roll of gray hair over the back of his collar, like certain old-fashioned statesmen, and seen from behind, he looked like the man the empire wants. Seen from the front, he looked like a mild, self-indulgent bachelor, with rooms in the Albany, which he was. As has been remarked, there were twenty-four seats at the terrace table, and only twelve members of the club. Thus they could occupy the terrace in the most luxurious style of all, being ranged along the inner side of the table, with no one opposite, commanding an uninterrupted view of the garden, the colors of which were still vivid, though evening was closing in somewhat luridly for the time of year. The chairman sat in the center of the line, and the vice-president at the right-hand end of it. When the twelve guests first trooped into their seats, it was the custom, for some unknown reason, for all the fifteen waiters to stand lining the wall like troops presenting arms to the king, while the fat proprietor stood and bowed to the club with radiant surprise, as if he had never heard of them before. But before the first chink of knife and fork, this army of retainers had vanished only the one or two required to collect and distribute the plates, darting about in deathly silence. Mr. Lever, the proprietor, of course had disappeared in convulsions of courtesy long before. It would be exaggerative, indeed irreverent, to say that he ever positively appeared again. But when the important course, the fish course, was being brought on, there was how shall I put it, a vivid shadow, a projection of his personality, which told that he was hovering near. The sacred fish course consisted, to the eyes of the vulgar, in a sort of monstrous pudding about the size and shape of a wedding cake, in which some considerable number of interesting fishes had finally lost the shapes which God had given to them. The twelve true fishermen took up their celebrated fish knives and fish forks, and approached it as gravely as if every inch of the pudding cost as much as the silver fork it was eaten with. So it did, for all I know. This course was dealt with in eager and devouring silence, and it was only when his plate was nearly empty that the young duke made the ritual remark. "'They can't do this anywhere but here.' "'Nowhere,' said Mr. Audley, in a deep bass voice, "'turning to the speaker and nodding his venerable head a number of times. "'Nowhere, assuredly, except here. "'It was represented to me that at the Café Anglais—' "'Here he was interrupted and even agitated for a moment by the removal of his plate.' "'but he recaptured the valuable thread of his thoughts. "'It was represented to me "'that the same could be done at the Café Anglais. "'Nothing like it, sir,' he said, "'shaking his head ruthlessly, like a hanging judge. "'Nothing like it. "'Overrated place,' said a certain Colonel Pound, "'speaking, by the look of him, "'for the first time for some months.' "'Oh, I don't know,' said the Duke of Chester, who was an optimist. "'It's jolly good for some things. You can't beat it at—' A waiter came swiftly along the room, and then stopped dead. His stoppage was as silent as his tread, but all those vague and kindly gentlemen were so used to the utter smoothness of the unseen machinery which surrounded and supported their lives— that a waiter doing anything unexpected was a start and a jar. They felt as you and I would feel if the inanimate world disobeyed, if a chair ran away from us. The waiter stood staring a few seconds, while there deepened on every face at table a strange shame which is wholly the product of our time. It is the combination of modern humanitarianism with the horrible modern abyss between the souls of the rich and poor. A genuine historic aristocrat would have thrown things at the waiter, beginning with empty bottles and very probably ending with money. A genuine democrat would have asked him, with a comrade-like clearness of speech, what the devil he was doing. But these modern plutocrats could not bear a poor man near to them, either as a slave or as a friend. That something had gone wrong with the servants was merely a dull, hot embarrassment. They did not want to be brutal, and they dreaded the need to be benevolent. They wanted the thing, whatever it was, to be over. It was over. The waiter, after standing for some seconds rigid, like a cataleptic, turned round, and ran madly out of the room. When he reappeared in the room, or rather in the doorway, it was in company with another waiter, with whom he whispered and gesticulated with southern fierceness. Then the first waiter went away, leaving the second waiter, and reappeared with a third waiter. By the time a fourth waiter had joined this hurried synod, Mr. Audley felt it necessary to break the silence in the interests of tact. He used a very loud cough, instead of a presidential hammer, and said, "'Splendid work young Moocher's doing in Burma! Now no other nation in the world could have!' A fifth waiter had sped towards him like an arrow, and was whispering in his ear, "'So sorry, important. Might the proprietor speak to you?' The chairman turned in disorder, and with a dazed stare saw Mr. Lever coming towards them with his lumbering quickness. The gait of the good proprietor was indeed his usual gait, but his face was by no means usual. Generally it was a genial copper-brown. Now it was a sickly yellow. "'You will pardon me, Mr. Audley.' "'he said with asthmatic breathlessness. "'I have great apprehensions. "'Your fish plates, "'they are cleared away with the knife and fork on them.' "'Well, I hope so,' said the chairman with some warmth. "'You see him?' panted the excited hotel-keeper. "'You see the waiter who took them away? "'You know him?' "'Know the waiter?' Answered Mr. Audley indignantly. Certainly not. Mr. Lever opened his hands with a gesture of agony. I never send him, he said. I know not when or why he come. I send my waiter to take away the plates, and he find them already away. Mr. Audley still looked rather too bewildered to be really the man the Empire wants. None of the company could say anything except the man of wood, Colonel Pound, who seemed galvanized into an unnatural life. He rose rigidly from his chair, leaving all the rest sitting, screwed his eyeglass into his eye, and spoke in a raucous undertone, as if he had half forgotten how to speak. "'Do you mean,' he said, "'that somebody has stolen our silver fish service?' the proprietor repeated the open-handed gesture with even greater helplessness. And in a flash, all the men at the table were on their feet. "'Are all your waiters here?' demanded the colonel, in his low, harsh accent. "'Yes, they're all here. I noticed it myself,' cried the young duke, pushing his boyish face into the inmost ring. "'Always count them as I come in, they look so queer standing up against the wall. "'But surely one cannot exactly remember,' began Mr. Audley, with heavy hesitation. "'I remember exactly, I tell you,' cried the Duke excitedly. "'There never have been more than fifteen waiters at this place, "'and there were no more than fifteen to-night, I'll swear. "'No more and no less.' The proprietor turned upon him. "'quaking in a kind of palsy of surprise. "'You say, you say,' he stammered, "'that you see all my fifteen waiters?' "'As usual,' assented the Duke, "'what is the matter with that?' "'Nothing,' said Lever, with a deepening accent. "'Only you did not, for one of them is dead upstairs.' "'there was a shocking stillness for an instant in that room. "'It may be, so supernatural is the word death, "'that each of those idle men looked for a second at his soul "'and saw it as a small dried pea. "'One of them, the duke, I think, "'even said with the idiotic kindness of wealth, "'Is there anything we can do?' He has had a priest, said the Jew, not untouched. Then, as to the clang of doom, they awoke to their own position. For a few weird seconds they had really felt as if the fifteenth waiter might be the ghost of the dead man upstairs. They had been dumb under that oppression, for ghosts were to them an embarrassment, like beggars. "'But the remembrance of the silver broke the spell of the miraculous, "'broke it abruptly and with a brutal reaction. "'The colonel flung over his chair and strode to the door. "'If there was a fifteenth man here, friends,' he said, "'that fifteenth fellow was a thief. "'Down at once to the front and back doors and secure everything. "'Then we'll talk. "'The twenty-four pearls of the club,' are worth recovering. Mr. Audley seemed at first to hesitate about whether it was gentlemanly to be in such a hurry about anything, but, seeing the Duke dash down the stairs with youthful energy, he followed with a more mature motion. At the same instant a sixth waiter ran into the room, and declared that he had found the pile of fish-plates on a sideboard, with no trace of the silver. the crowd of diners and attendants that tumbled helter-skelter down the passages divided into two groups. Most of the fishermen followed the proprietor to the front room to demand news of any exit. Colonel Pound, with the chairman, the vice president, and one or two others, darted down the corridor leading to the servants' quarters as the more likely line of escape. As they did so, they passed the dim alcove or cavern of the cloakroom, and saw a short, black-coated figure, presumably an attendant, standing a little way back in the shadow of it. "'Hallo there,' called the Duke. "'Have you seen any pass?' The short figure did not answer the question directly, but merely said, Perhaps I have got what you are looking for, gentlemen." They paused, wavering and wondering, while he quietly went to the back of the cloakroom, and came back with both hands full of shining silver, which he laid out on the counter as calmly as a salesman. It took the form of a dozen quaintly-shaped forks and knives. "'You—you,' you, began the colonel. Quite thrown off his balance at last. Then he peered into the dim little room and saw two things. First, that the short, black clad man was dressed like a clergyman, and, second, that the window of the room behind him was burst, as if someone had passed violently through. Valuable things to deposit in a cloakroom, aren't they? remarked the clergyman. With cheerful composure did did you steal those things, stammered Mr. Audley, with staring eyes, if I did, said the clerk pleasantly, at least I am bringing them back again, but you didn't said Colonel Pound, still staring at the broken window to make a clean breast of it, I didn't said the other with some humour. "'and he seated himself quite gravely on a stool. "'But you know who did,' said the colonel. "'I don't know his real name,' said the priest placidly. "'But I know something of his fighting weight "'and a great deal about his spiritual difficulties. "'I formed the physical estimate when he was trying to throttle me "'and the moral estimate when he repented. "'Oh, I say, repented!' "'cried young Chester, with a sort of crow of laughter. "'Father Brown got to his feet, putting his hands behind him. "'Odd, isn't it,' he said, "'that a thief and a vagabond should repent, "'when so many who are rich and secure "'remain hard and frivolous, "'and without fruit for God or man. "'But there, if you will excuse me, "'you trespass a little upon my province.' If you doubt the penitence is a practical fact, there are your knives and forks. You are the twelve true fishers, and there are all your silver fish. But he has made me a fisher of men. Did you catch this man? asked the colonel, frowning. Father Brown looked him full in his frowning face. Yes, he said. I caught him, with an unseen hook and an invisible line which is long enough to let him wander to the ends of the world, and still to bring him back, with a twitch upon the thread. There was a long silence. All the other men present drifted away to carry the recovered silver to their comrades, or to consult the proprietor about the queer condition of affairs but the grim-faced colonel still sat sideways on the counter, swinging his long, lank legs and biting his dark moustache. At last he said quietly to the priest, "'He must have been a clever fellow, "'but I think I know a cleverer.' "'He was a clever fellow,' answered the other, "'but I'm not quite sure what other you mean.' "'I mean you,' said the colonel, with a short laugh. "'I don't want to get the fellow jailed. "'Make yourself easy about that. "'But I'd give a good many silver forks "'to know exactly how you fell into this affair "'and how you got the stuff out of him. "'I reckon you're the most up-to-date devil "'of the present company.' "'Father Brown seemed rather to like "'the Saturnine candor of the soldier. "'Well,' he said, smiling, I mustn't tell you anything of the man's identity, or his own story, of course, but there's no particular reason why I shouldn't tell you of the mere outside facts, which I found out for myself. He hopped over the barrier with unexpected activity, and sat beside Colonel Pound, kicking his short legs like a little boy on a gate. HE BEGAN TO TELL THE STORY AS EASILY AS IF HE WERE TELLING IT TO AN OLD FRIEND BY A CHRISTMAS FIRE. "'You see, Colonel,' he said, "'I was shut up in that small room there doing some writing, when I heard a pair of feet in this passage doing a dance that was as queer as the dance of death. First came quick, funny little steps, like a man walking on tiptoe for a wager.' Then came slow, careless, creaking steps, as of a big man walking about with a cigar. But they were both made by the same feet, I swear, and they came in rotation, first the run, and then the walk, and then the run again. I wondered at first idly, and then wildly, why a man should act these two parts at once. One walk I knew. "'It was just like yours, Colonel. "'It was the walk of a well-fed gentleman "'waiting for something, "'who strolls about rather because he is physically alert "'than because he is mentally impatient. "'I knew that I knew the other walk, too, "'but I could not remember what it was. "'What wild creature had I met on my travels "'that tore along on tiptoe in that extraordinary style?' Then I heard a clink of plates somewhere, and the answer stood up as plain as St. Peter's. It was the walk of a waiter, that walk with the body slanted forward, the eyes looking down, the ball of the toe spurning away the ground, the coat-tails and napkin flying. Then I thought for a minute and a half more, and I believe I saw the manner of the crime as clearly as if I were going to commit it. Colonel Pound looked at him keenly, but the speaker's mild gray eyes were fixed upon the ceiling with almost empty wistfulness. "'A crime,' he said slowly, "'is like any other work of art. "'Don't look surprised. "'Crimes are by no means the only works of art "'that come from an infernal workshop. "'But every work of art, divine or diabolic, has one indispensable mark. I mean that the centre of it is simple, however much the fulfilment may be complicated. Thus, in Hamlet, let us say, the grotesqueness of the gravedigger, the flowers of the mad girl, the fantastic finery of Osric, the pallor of the ghost, and the grin of the skull, are all oddities in a sort of tangled wreath round one plain tragic figure of a man in black. Well, this also, he said, getting slowly down from his seat with a smile, this also is the plain tragedy of a man in black. Yes, he went on, seeing the colonel look up in some wonder. The whole of this tale turns on a black coat. In this, As in Hamlet, there are the Rococo excrescences, yourselves, let us say. There is the dead waiter, who was there when he could not be there. There is the invisible hand that swept your table clear of silver and melted into air. But every clever crime is founded ultimately on some one quite simple fact, some fact that is not itself mysterious the mystification comes in covering it up in leading men's thoughts away from it this large and subtle and in the ordinary course most profitable crime was built on the plain fact that a gentleman's evening dress is the same as a waiter's all the rest was acting and thundering good acting too still said the colonel, getting up and frowning at his boots. I am not sure that I understand. Colonel, said Father Brown, I tell you that this archangel of impudence, who stole your forks, walked up and down this passage twenty times in the blaze of all the lamps, in the glare of all the eyes. He did not go and hide in dim corners where suspicion might have searched for him. "'he kept constantly on the move in the lighted corridors, "'and everywhere that he went he seemed to be there by right. "'Don't ask me what he was like. "'You have seen him yourself six or seven times tonight. "'You were waiting with all the other grand people "'in the reception room at the end of the passage there, "'with the terrace just beyond. "'Whenever he came among you gentlemen, "'he came in the lightning style of a waiter.' his bent head, flapping napkin, and flying feet. He shot out on the terrace, did something to the tablecloth, and shot back again towards the office and the waiter's quarters. By the time he had come under the eye of the office clerk and the waiters, he had become another man in every inch of his body, in every instinctive gesture. He strolled among the servants with the absent-minded insolence, "'which they have all seen in their patrons. "'It was no new thing to them "'that a swell from the dinner party "'should pace all parts of the house "'like an animal at the zoo. "'They know that nothing marks the smart set "'more than a habit of walking where one chooses. "'When he was magnificently weary "'of walking down that particular passage, "'he would wheel round and pace back past the office.' In the shadow of the arch just beyond, he was altered as by a blast of magic, and went hurrying forward again among the twelve fishermen, an obsequious attendant. Why should the gentleman look at a chance waiter? Why should the waiters suspect a first-rate walking gentleman? Once or twice he played the coolest tricks. In the proprietor's private quarters he called out breezily for a siphon of soda-water, saying he was thirsty. He said genially that he would carry it himself, and he did. He carried it quickly and correctly through the thick of you, a waiter with an obvious errand. Of course, it could not have been kept up long, but it only had to be kept up until the end of the fish course. His worst moment was when the waiters stood in a row. "'but even then he contrived to lean against the wall "'just round the corner in such a way "'that for that important instant "'the waiters thought him a gentleman "'while the gentleman thought him a waiter. "'The rest went on like winking. "'If any waiter caught him away from the table, "'that waiter caught a languid aristocrat. "'He had only to time himself two minutes "'before the fish was cleared, "'become a swift servant,' and clear it himself. He put the plates down on a sideboard, stuffed the silver in his breast pocket, giving it a bulgy look, and ran like a hare, I heard him coming, till he came to the cloakroom. There he had only to be a plutocrat again, a plutocrat called away suddenly on business. He had only to give his ticket to the cloakroom attendant, and go out again elegantly as he had come in. Only, only I happened to be the cloakroom attendant. "'What did you do to him?' cried the colonel with unusual intensity. "'What did he tell you?' "'I beg your pardon,' said the priest, immovably. "'That is where the story ends.' "'And the interesting story begins,' muttered Pound. "'I think I understand his professional trick.' "'but I don't seem to have got hold of yours.' "'I must be going,' said Father Brown. "'They walked together along the passage to the entrance hall, "'where they saw the fresh, freckled face of the Duke of Chester, "'who was bounding buoyantly along towards them. "'Come along, Pound,' he cried breathlessly. "'I've been looking for you everywhere. "'The dinner's going again in spanking style.' "'and old Audley has got to make a speech "'in honour of the forks being saved. "'We want to start some new ceremony, don't you know, "'to commemorate the occasion. "'I say, you really got the goods back. "'What do you suggest?' "'Why,' said the Colonel, eyeing him with a certain sardonic approval, "'I should suggest that henceforward "'we wear green coats instead of black.' "'One never knows what mistakes may arise "'when one looks so like a waiter.' "'Oh, hang it all,' said the young man. "'A gentleman never looks like a waiter.' "'Nor a waiter like a gentleman, I suppose,' "'said Colonel Pound, "'with the same lowering laughter on his face. "'Reverend Sir, "'Your friend must have been very smart "'to act the gentleman.' Father Brown buttoned up his commonplace overcoat to the neck, for the night was stormy, and took his commonplace umbrella from the stand. "'Yes,' he said, "'it must be very hard work to be a gentleman. But, do you know, I have sometimes thought that it may be almost as laborious to be a waiter.' And saying good evening, he pushed open the heavy doors of that palace of pleasures." the golden gates closed behind him, and he went at a brisk walk through the damp, dark streets in search of a penny omnibus. End of the Queer Feet This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, Please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg. www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton. The Flying Stars. The most beautiful crime I ever committed, Flambeau would say in his highly moral old age, was also, by a singular coincidence, my last. It was committed at Christmas. As an artist, I had always attempted to provide crimes suitable to the special season or landscapes in which I found myself. "'choosing this or that terrace or garden for a catastrophe "'as if for a statuary group. "'Thus squires should be swindled in long rooms panelled with oak, "'while Jews, on the other hand, "'should rather find themselves unexpectedly penniless "'among the lights and screens of the Café Riche. "'Thus, in England, "'if I wished to relieve a dean of his riches,' "'which is not so easy as you might suppose. "'I wished to frame him, if I make myself clear, "'in the green lawns and grey towers of some cathedral town. "'Similarly, in France, "'when I had got money out of a rich and wicked peasant, "'which is almost impossible, "'it gratified me to get his indignant head relieved "'against a grey line of clipped poplars.' and those solemn plains of Gaul, over which broods the mighty spirit of Malay. Well, my last crime was a Christmas crime, a cheery, cozy, English middle-class crime, a crime of Charles Dickens. I did it in a good old middle-class house near Putney, a house with a crescent of carriage drive, "'A house with a stable by the side of it. "'A house with the name on the two outer gates. "'A house with a monkey tree. "'Enough. You know the species. "'I really think my imitation of Dickens's style "'was dexterous and literary. "'It seems almost a pity I repented the same evening.' "'Flambeau would then proceed to tell the story from the inside.' and even from the inside it was odd. Seen from the outside, it was perfectly incomprehensible, and it is from the outside that the stranger must study it. From this standpoint, the drama may be said to have begun when the front doors of the house with the stable opened on the garden with the monkey tree, and a young girl came out with bread to feed the birds on the afternoon of Boxing Day. She had a pretty face, with brave brown eyes. But her figure was beyond conjecture, for she was so wrapped up in brown furs that it was hard to say which was hair and which was fur. But for the attractive face, she might have been a small toddling bear. The winter afternoon was reddening towards evening, and already a ruby light was rolled over the bloomless beds filling them, as it were, with the ghosts of the dead roses. On one side of the house stood the stable. On the other, an alley or cloister of laurels led to the larger garden behind. The young lady, having scattered bread for the birds for the fourth or fifth time that day, because the dog ate it, passed unobtrusively down the lane of laurels "'and into a glittering plantation of evergreens behind. "'Here she gave an exclamation of wonder, real or ritual, "'and looking up at the high garden wall above her, "'beheld it fantastically bestridden "'by a somewhat fantastic figure. "'Oh, don't jump, Mr. Crook,' she called out in some alarm. "'It's much too high.' The individual riding the party wall like an aerial horse was a tall, angular young man with dark hair sticking up like a hairbrush, intelligent and even distinguished lineaments, but a sallow and almost alien complexion. This showed the more plainly because he wore an aggressive red tie, the only part of his costume of which he seemed to take any care. Perhaps it was a symbol. He took no notice of the girl's alarmed adjuration, but leapt like a grasshopper to the ground beside her, where he might very well have broken his legs. "'I think I was meant to be a burglar,' he said placidly. And I have no doubt I should have been, if I hadn't happened to be born in that nice house next door. I can't see any harm in it, anyhow.' "'How can you say such things?' she remonstrated. "'Well,' said the young man, "'if you're born on the wrong side of the wall, "'I can't see that it's wrong to climb over it.' "'I never know what you will say or do next,' she said. "'I don't often know myself,' replied Mr. Crook. "'But then I am on the right side of the wall now.' And which is the right side of the wall? asked the young lady, smiling. Whichever side you are on, said the young man, named Crook. As they went together through the laurels toward the front garden, a motor horn sounded thrice, coming nearer and nearer, and a car of splendid speed, great elegance, and a pale green color swept up to the front doors like a bird, and stood throbbing. Hello, hello,' said the young man with the red tie. "'Here's somebody born on the right side, anyhow. "'I didn't know, Miss Adams, "'that your Santa Claus was so modern as this. "'Oh, that's my godfather, Sir Leopold Fisher. "'He always comes on Boxing Day.' "'Then, after an innocent pause, "'which unconsciously betrayed some lack of enthusiasm, "'Ruby Adams added,' He is very kind. John Crook, journalist, had heard of that eminent city magnate, and it was not his fault if the city magnate had not heard of him, for in certain articles in The Clarion, or The New Age, Sir Leopold had been dealt with austerely. But he said nothing, and grimly watched the unloading of the motor-car, which was rather a long process. A large, neat chauffeur in green got out from the front, and a small, neat manservant in grey got out from the back, and between them they deposited Sir Leopold on the doorstep and began to unpack him, like some very carefully protected parcel. Rugs enough to stock up a bazaar, furs of all the beasts of the forest, and scarves of all the colors of the rainbow were unwrapped one by one they revealed something resembling the human form, the form of a friendly but foreign-looking old gentleman, with a grey goat-like beard and a beaming smile, who rubbed his big fur gloves together. Long before this revelation was complete, the two big doors of the porch had opened in the middle, and Colonel Adams, father of the furry young lady, had come out himself "'to invite his eminent guest inside. "'He was a tall, sunburnt, and very silent man "'who wore a red smoking-cap like a fez, "'making him look like one of the English sirdars "'or pashas in Egypt. "'With him was his brother-in-law, "'lately come from Canada, "'a big and rather boisterous young gentleman farmer "'with a yellow beard, by name James Blount.' With him also was the more insignificant figure of the priest from the neighboring Roman church, for the colonel's late wife had been a Catholic, and the children, as is common in such cases, had been trained to follow her. Everything seemed undistinguished about the priest, even down to his name, which was Brown. Yet the colonel had always found something companionable about him, and frequently asked him to such family gatherings. In the large entrance hall of the house, there was ample room even for Sir Leopold and the removal of his wraps. Porch and vestibule, indeed, were unduly large in proportion to the house, and formed, as it were, a big room with the front door at one end, and the bottom of the staircase at the other. In front of the large hall fire, over which hung the colonel's sword, the process was completed, and the company, including the Saturnine crook, presented to Sir Leopold Fisher. That venerable financier, however, still seemed struggling with portions of his well-lined attire, and at length produced from a very interior tail-coat pocket a black oval case which he radiantly explained to be his Christmas present for his goddaughter." With an unaffected vainglory that had something disarming about it, he held out the case before them all. It flew open at a touch and half-blinded them. It was just as if a crystal fountain had spurted in their eyes. In a nest of orange velvet lay like three eggs, three white and vivid diamonds that seemed to set the very air on fire all round them. Fisher stood beaming benevolently and drinking deep of the astonishment and ecstasy of the girl, the grim admiration and gruff thanks of the colonel, the wonder of the whole group. "'I'll put back now, my dear,' said Fisher, returning the case to the tails of his coat. "'I had to be careful of him coming down. "'They're the three great African diamonds called the Flying Stars.' "'because they've been stolen so often. "'All the big criminals are on the track, "'but even the rough men about in the streets and hotels "'could hardly have kept their hands off them. "'I might have lost them on the road here. "'It was quite possible.' "'Quite natural, I should say,' "'growled the man in the red tie. "'I shouldn't blame them if they had taken them. "'When they ask for bread... "'and you don't even give them a stone. "'I think they might take the stone for themselves.' "'I won't have you talking like that,' cried the girl, "'who was in a curious glow. "'You've only talked like that since you became a horrid what's-his-name. "'You know what I mean. "'What do you call a man who wants to embrace the chimney-sweep?' "'A saint,' said Father Brown. "'I think,' said Sir Leopold, With a supercilious smile, that Ruby means a socialist. A radical does not mean a man who lives on radishes, remarked Crook with some impatience, and a conservative does not mean a man who preserves jam. Neither, I assure you, does a socialist mean a man who desires a social evening with the chimney sweep. A socialist means a man who wants all the chimneys swept and all the chimney-sweeps paid for it. But who won't allow you, put in the priest in a low voice, to own your own soot? Crook looked at him with an eye of interest and even respect. Does one want to own soot? he asked. One might, answered Father Brown, with speculation in his eye. I've heard that gardeners use it, "'and I once made six children happy at Christmas, "'when the conjurer didn't come, "'entirely with soot,' applied externally. "'Oh, splendid!' cried Ruby. "'Oh, I wish you'd do it to this company.' "'The boisterous Canadian, Mr. Blount, "'was lifting his loud voice in applause, "'and the astonished financier his, "'in some considerable deprecation.' when a knock sounded at the double front doors. The priest opened them, and they showed again the front garden of evergreens, monkey-tree and all, now gathering gloom against a gorgeous violet sunset. The scene thus framed was so colored and quaint, like a back scene in a play, that they forgot a moment the insignificant figure standing in the door. He was dusty-looking and in a frayed coat, Evidently, a common messenger, any of you gentlemen, Mr. Blount, he asked, and held forward a letter doubtfully. Mr. Blount started and stopped in his shout of assent, ripping up the envelope with evident astonishment. He read it, his face clouded a little and then cleared, and he turned to his brother-in-law and host. "I'm sick at being such a nuisance, Colonel he said. "'with the cheery colonial conventions. "'But would it upset you if an old acquaintance "'called on me here tonight on business? "'In point of fact it's Florian, "'that famous French acrobat and comic actor. "'I knew him years ago out west. "'He was a French-Canadian by birth. "'And he seems to have business for me, "'though I hardly guess what.' "'Of course, of course,' replied the colonel carelessly. My dear chap, any friend of yours. No doubt he will prove an acquisition. He'll black his face, if that's what you mean, cried Blount, laughing. I don't doubt he'd black everyone else's eyes. I don't care. I'm not refined. I like the jolly old pantomime where a man sits on his top hat. Not on mine, please, said Sir Leopold Fisher, with dignity. Well, well, observed Crook airily, don't let's quarrel. There are lower jokes than sitting on a top hat. Dislike of the red-tied youth, born of his predatory opinions and evident intimacy with the pretty godchild, led Fisher to say, in his most sarcastic magisterial manner, No doubt you have found something much lower than sitting on a top hat. "'What is it, pray?' "'Letting a top hat sit on you, for instance,' said the Socialist. "'Now, now, now,' cried the Canadian farmer, with his barbarian benevolence. "'Don't let's spoil a jolly evening. "'What I say is, let's do something for the company tonight. "'Not blacking faces or sitting on hats, if you don't like those, "'but something of the sort.' Why couldn't we have a proper old English pantomime, clown, columbine, and so on? I saw one when I left England at twelve years old, and it's blazed in my brain like a bonfire ever since. I came back to the old country only last year, and I find the things extinct, nothing but a lot of sniveling fairy plays. I want a hot poker and a policeman made into sausages and they give me princesses moralizing by moonlight, bluebirds, or something. Blue beards, more in my line. And him I like best when he turned into the pantaloon. "'I'm all for making a policeman into sausages,' said John Crook. "'It's a better definition of socialism than some recently given. "'But surely the get-up would be too big a business.' Not a scrap, cried Blount, quite carried away. A harlequinade's the quickest thing we can do, for two reasons. First, one can gag to any degree. And, second, all the objects are household things tables and towel horses and washing baskets and things like that. That's true, admitted Crook, nodding eagerly and walking about. "'but I'm afraid I can't have my policeman's uniform. "'Haven't killed a policeman lately.' "'Blount frowned thoughtfully a space "'and then smote his thigh. "'Yes, we can,' he cried. "'I've got Florian's address here, "'and he knows every costumier in London. "'I'll phone him to bring a police dress when he comes.' "'And he went bounding away to the telephone. "'Oh, it's glorious, Godfather!' "'cried Gruby, almost dancing. "'I'll be Columbine, and you shall be Pantaloon.' "'The millionaire held himself stiff, "'with a sort of heathen solemnity. "'I think, my dear,' he said, "'you must get someone else for Pantaloon.' "'I will be Pantaloon, if you like,' said Colonel Adams, "'taking his cigar out of his mouth, "'and speaking for the first and last time.' "'You ought to have a statue,' cried the Canadian, "'as he came back radiant from the telephone. "'There, we are all fitted. "'Mr. Crook shall be Clown. "'He's a journalist and knows all the oldest jokes. "'I can be Harlequin. "'That only wants long legs and jumping about. "'My friend Florian phones he's bringing the police costume. "'He's changing on the way. "'We can act it in this very hall.' "'the audience sitting on those broad stairs opposite, "'one row above another. "'These front doors can be the back scene, "'either open or shut. "'Shut, you see an English interior. "'Open, a moonlit garden. "'It all goes by magic. "'And snatching a chance piece of billiard chalk from his pocket, "'he ran it across the hall floor, "'halfway between the front door and the staircase,' to mark the line of the footlights. How even such a banquet of bosh was got ready in the time remained a riddle. But they went at it with that mixture of recklessness and industry that lives when youth is in a house, and youth was in that house that night, though not all may have isolated the two faces and hearts from which it flamed. As always happens, the invention grew wilder and wilder "'through the very tameness of the bourgeois conventions "'from which it had to create. "'The columbine looked charming in an outstanding skirt "'that strangely resembled the large lampshade in the drawing-room. "'The clown and pantaloon made themselves white with flour from the cook "'and red with rouge from some other domestic "'who remained, like all true Christian benefactors, anonymous.' "'The harlequin, already clad in silver paper "'out of cigar-boxes, was, with difficulty, "'prevented from smashing the old Victorian luster chandeliers "'that he might cover himself with resplendent crystals. "'In fact, he would certainly have done so, "'had not ruby unearthed some old pantomime-paste jewels "'she had worn at a fancy dress-party "'as the Queen of Diamonds. "'Indeed, her uncle,' "'James Blount, was getting almost out of hand in his excitement. "'He was like a schoolboy. "'He put a paper donkey's head unexpectedly on Father Brown, "'who bore it patiently, "'and even found some private manner of moving his ears. "'He even essayed to put the paper donkey's tail "'to the coat-tails of Sir Leopold Fisher. "'This, however, was frowned down. "'Uncle is too absurd,' cried ruby to crook round whose shoulders she had seriously placed the string of sausages why is he so wild he is harlequin to your columbine said crook i am only the clown who makes the old jokes i wish you were the harlequin she said and left the string of sausages swinging father brown though he knew every detail done behind the scenes, and had even evoked applause by his transformation of a pillow into a pantomime baby, went round to the front and sat among the audience with all the solemn expectation of a child at his first matinee. The spectators were few, relations, one or two local friends, and servants. Sir Leopold sat in the front seat his full and still fur-collared figure largely obscuring the view of the little cleric behind him. But it has never been settled by artistic authorities whether the cleric lost much. The pantomime was utterly chaotic, yet not contemptible. There ran through it a rage of improvisation which came chiefly from Crook the Clown. Commonly he was a clever man, and he was inspired tonight with a wild omniscience, a folly wiser than the world, that which comes to a young man who has seen for an instant a particular expression on a particular face. He was supposed to be the clown, but he really was almost everything else, the author, so far as there was an author, the prompter, the scene-painter, the scene-shifter, and, above all, the orchestra. At abrupt intervals in the outrageous performance, he would hurl himself in full costume at the piano, and bang out some popular music equally absurd and appropriate. The climax of this, as of all else, was the moment when the two front doors at the back of the scene flew open, showing the lovely moonlit garden, but showing more prominently the famous professional guest, the great Florian, dressed up as a policeman. The clown at the piano played the constabulary chorus in The Pirates of Penzance, but it was drowned in the deafening applause, for every gesture of the great comic actor was an admirable, though restrained version, of the carriage and manner of the police. The harlequin leapt upon him and hit him over the helmet, the pianist playing, Where did you get that hat? he faced about in admirably simulated astonishment, and then the leaping harlequin hit him again, the pianist suggesting a few bars of, Then we had another one. Then the harlequin rushed right into the arms of the policeman, and fell on top of him, amid a roar of applause. Then it was that the strange actor gave that celebrated imitation of a dead man, "'of which the fame still lingers round Putney. "'It was almost impossible to believe "'that a living person could appear so limp. "'The athletic harlequin swung him about like a sack, "'or twisted or tossed him like an Indian club, "'all the time to the most maddeningly ludicrous tunes from the piano. "'When the harlequin heaved the comic constable heavily off the floor, "'the clown played,' I arise from dreams of thee, when he shuffled him across his back, with my bundle on my shoulder, and when the harlequin finally let fall the policeman with a most convincing thud, the lunatic at the instrument struck into a jingling measure, with some words which are still believed to have been, I sent a letter to my love, and on the way I dropped it. At about this limit of mental anarchy, Father Brown's view was obscured altogether, for the city magnate in front of him rose to his full height and thrust his hands savagely into all his pockets. Then he sat down nervously, still fumbling, and then stood up again. For an instant it seemed seriously likely that he would stride across the footlights. Then he turned a glare at the clown playing the piano and then he burst in silence out of the room. The priest had only watched for a few more minutes the absurd but not inelegant dance of the amateur harlequin over his splendidly unconscious foe. With real though rude art, the harlequin danced slowly backwards out of the door into the garden, which was full of moonlight and stillness. The vamped dress of silver paper and paste which had been too glaring in the footlights, looked more and more magical and silvery as it danced away under a brilliant moon. The audience was closing in with a cataract of applause when Brown felt his arm abruptly touched and he was asked in a whisper to come into the colonel's study. He followed his summoner with increasing doubt, which was not dispelled, by a solemn comicality in the scene of the study. There sat Colonel Adams, still unaffectedly dressed as a pantaloon, with the knobbed whalebone nodding above his brow, but with his poor old eyes sad enough to have sobered a Saturnalia. Sir Leopold Fisher was leaning against the mantelpiece, and heaving with all the importance of panic. "'This is a very painful matter, Father Brown,' said Adams. "'The truth is, those diamonds we all saw this afternoon "'seem to have vanished from my friend's tailcoat pocket. "'And as you,' as I, supplemented Father Brown with a broad grin, "'was sitting just behind him.' "'Nothing of the sort shall be suggested,' said Colonel Adams, "'with a firm look at Fisher.' "'which rather implied that some such thing had been suggested. "'I only ask you to give me the assistance "'that any gentleman might give.' "'Which is turning out his pockets,' said Father Brown, "'and proceeded to do so, "'displaying seven and sixpence, "'a return ticket, a small silver crucifix, "'a small breviary, and a stick of chocolate.' "'The colonel looked at him long,' "'and then said, "'Do you know, I should like to see the inside of your head "'more than the inside of your pockets. "'My daughter is one of your people, I know. "'Well, she has lately,' and he stopped. "'She has lately,' cried out old Fisher, "'opened her father's house to a cutthroat socialist "'who says openly he would steal anything from a richer man.' "'This is the end of it. "'Here is the richer man, and none the richer.' "'If you want the inside of my head, you can have it,' "'said Brown rather wearily. "'What it's worth, you can say afterwards. "'But the first thing I find in that disused pocket is this, "'that men who mean to steal diamonds don't talk socialism.' "'They are more likely,' he added demurely, to denounce it. Both the others shifted sharply, and the priest went on. You see, we know these people, more or less. That socialist would no more steal a diamond than a pyramid. We ought to look at once to the one man we don't know the fellow acting the policeman, Florian. Where is he exactly at this minute, I wonder? The pantaloon sprang erect and strode out of the room. An interlude ensued, during which the millionaire stared at the priest and the priest at his breviary. Then the pantaloon returned and said, with staccato gravity, The policeman is still lying on the stage. The curtain has gone up and down six times. He is still lying there. Father Brown dropped his book and stood staring with a look of blank mental ruin. Very slowly a light began to creep in his gray eyes, and then he made the scarcely obvious answer. "'Please forgive me, Colonel, but when did your wife die?' "'Wife?' replied the staring soldier. "'She died this year two months. "'Her brother James arrived just a week too late to see her.' "'the little priest bounded like a rabbit shot. "'Come on,' he cried in quite unusual excitement. "'Come on. "'We've got to go and look at that policeman.' "'They rushed on to the now-curtained stage, "'breaking rudely past the columbine and clown, "'who seemed whispering quite contentedly, "'and Father Brown bent over the prostrate comic policeman. "'Chloroform.' "'he said as he rose. "'I only guessed it just now.' "'There was a startled stillness, "'and then the Colonel said slowly, "'Please say seriously what all this means.' "'Father Brown suddenly shouted with laughter, "'then stopped, "'and only struggled with it for instance "'during the rest of his speech. "'Gentlemen,' he gasped, "'there's not much time to talk.' I must run after the criminal, but this great French actor who played the policeman, this clever corpse the harlequin waltzed with and dandled and threw about, he was, his voice again failed him, and he turned his back to run. He was, called Fisher inquiringly. A real policeman, said Father Brown, and ran away into the dark. There were hollows and bowers at the extreme end of that leafy garden, in which the laurels and other immortal shrubs showed against sapphire sky and silver moon, even in that midwinter, warm colors as of the south. The green gaiety of the waving laurels, the rich purple indigo of the night, the moon like a monstrous crystal, make an almost irresponsible romantic picture. And among the top branches of the garden trees a strange figure is climbing, who looks not so much romantic as impossible. He sparkles from head to heel, as if clad in ten million moons. The real moon catches him at every movement and sets a new inch of him on fire. But he swings, flashing and successful, from the short tree in this garden, to the tall, rambling tree in the other, and only stops there because a shade has slid under the smaller tree and has unmistakably called up to him. "'Well, Flambeau,' says the voice, "'you really look like a flying star, "'but that always means a falling star at last.' "'The silver, sparkling figure above "'seems to lean forward in the laurels, AND, CONFIDENT OF ESCAPE, LISTENS TO THE LITTLE FIGURE BELOW. YOU NEVER DID ANYTHING BETTER, FLAMBEAU. IT WAS CLEVER TO COME FROM CANADA, WITH A PARIS TICKET, I SUPPOSE, JUST A WEEK AFTER MRS. ADAMS DIED, WHEN NO ONE WAS IN A MOOD TO ASK QUESTIONS. IT WAS CLEVERER TO HAVE MARKED DOWN THE FLYING STARS AND THE VERY DAY OF FISHER'S COMING. "'but there's no cleverness, but mere genius, in what followed. "'Stealing the stones, I suppose, was nothing to you. "'You could have done it by slate of hand in a hundred other ways, "'besides that pretense of putting a paper donkey's tail to Fisher's coat. "'But in the rest you eclipsed yourself. "'The silvery figure among the green leaves "'seems to linger as if hypnotized.' "'though his escape is easy behind him. "'He is staring at the man below. "'Oh, yes,' says the man below. "'I know all about it. "'I know you not only forced the pantomime, "'but put it to a double use. "'You were going to steal the stones quietly. "'News came by an accomplice "'that you were already suspected, "'and a capable police officer "'was coming to rout you up that very night.' A common thief would have been thankful for the warning and fled, but you are a poet. You already had the clever notion of hiding the jewels in a blaze of false stage-jewelry. Now you saw that if the dress were a Harlequin's, the appearance of a policeman would be quite in keeping. The wordly officer started from Putney police station to find you, and walked into the queerest trap ever set in this world. When the front door opened, he walked straight on to the stage of a Christmas pantomime, where he could be kicked, clubbed, stunned, and drugged by a dancing harlequin amid roars of laughter from all the most respectable people in Putney. "'Oh, you will never do anything better. "'And now, by the way, you might give me back those diamonds.' The green branch on which the glittering figure swung rustled as if in astonishment, but the voice went on. I want you to give them back, Flambeau, and I want you to give up this life. There is still youth and honor and humor in you. Don't fancy they will last in that trade. Men may keep a sort of level of good, but no man "'has ever been able to keep on one level of evil. "'That road goes down and down. "'The kind man drinks and turns cruel. "'The frank man kills and lies about it. "'Many a man I've known started like you to be an honest outlaw, "'a merry robber of the rich, "'and ended stamped into slime. "'Maurice Blum started out as an anarchist of principle, a father of the poor. He ended a greasy spy and tale-bearer that both sides used and despised. Harry Burke started his free money movement sincerely enough. Now he's sponging on a half-starved sister for endless brandies and sodas. Lord Amber went into wild society in a sort of chivalry. Now he's paying blackmail. The lowest vultures in London. Captain Barillon was the great gentleman Apache before your time. He died in a madhouse, screaming with fear of the narcs and receivers that had betrayed him and hunted him down. I know the woods look very free behind you, Flambeau. I know that in a flash you could melt into them like a monkey. But some day, "'You will be an old grey monkey, Flambeau. "'You will sit up in your free forest cold at heart "'and close to death, "'and the treetops will be very bare.' "'Everything continued still, "'as if the small man below "'held the other in the tree in some long invisible leash, "'and he went on. "'Your downward steps have begun.' You used to boast of doing nothing mean, but you are doing something mean tonight. You are leaving suspicion on an honest boy with a good deal against him already. You are separating him from the woman he loves and who loves him. But you will do meaner things than that before you die. Three flashing diamonds fell from the tree to the turf. The small man stooped to pick them up, and when he looked up again, the green cage of the tree was emptied of its silver bird. The restoration of the gems, accidentally picked up by Father Brown, of all people, ended the evening in uproarious triumph, and Sir Leopold, in his height of good humor, Even told the priest that though he himself had broader views, he could respect those whose creed required them to be cloistered and ignorant of this world. End of the Flying Stars